calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. Day two. Fun with snowmobiles. The Jewell family reunion was turning out to be a smashing success, and Donald Jewell couldn't have been happier. Granted, there weren't that many Jewels left. Ma and Pa Jewell had gone to that big snowmobile trail in the sky. Ma five years ago, Pa less than six months later. They left behind their three children, Mary, Bobby, and Donald. Mary Jewell Slater now lived in London with her husband. She couldn't exactly fly overseas to see the family every Christmas. She called. That was enough. Bobby Jewell lived in Ma and Pa's house. He'd married his college sweetheart, Candace, and promptly kicked out a bundle of joy named Chelsea, a curly blonde seven years old and worldly wise. Donald, the eldest member of Clan Jewell, had divorced his bitch of a wife, Hannah, four years earlier. Hannah won custody of Betty, then 12, now 16, and hotter than a $5 pistol. Hannah moved from their home in Gaylord, Michigan, to Atlanta, taking Betty far away from her family. The divorce stipulated that Donald got Betty for every other holiday. So the first Christmas with Hannah, then Donald, and so on. This was his second Christmas as a divorced father. Donald, now living in Pittsburgh, talked to his daughter at least every other day on the phone. They also chatted on webcam, emailed, and even wrote some old-fashioned letters. They were as tight as a father and daughter separated by 700 miles can be. Mostly from a distance, he'd watched his daughter grow from a gangly 12-year-old into a stunning teenager who could have graced the cover of practically any magazine. She looked exactly like her mother, which annoyed Donald because that made him hate Hannah just a little bit less. He had thought he might be biased about his daughter's looks, but when he showed pictures of her to his coworkers, their lewd hoots confirmed his fears. Those hoots had also, unfortunately, generated a couple of fights. The same temper Hannah cited in the divorce papers hadn't gone away. His court-appointed psychologist called it impulse control problems. The shrink prescribed pills. Donald lied and said he took them. Everyone was happy. His baby girl was growing up fast, and he didn't want her to lose touch with her family. Thus, the family reunion. A flight for Betty from Atlanta to Pittsburgh, then an eight-hour drive from Pittsburgh to Gaylord. 
Did they dread the drive? Nope. They got to talk the whole way up. Donald learned more about hot music, hot clothes, school gossip, and backstabbing friends than he cared to, and he loved every minute of it. Once she was back in Gaylord, the southern girl faded away, and the northern girl came back to life. Betty hadn't been on a snowmobile in two years, yet she hadn't lost a step. In a white snowsuit on a blue snowmobile, she raced across an open field, with her father only 50 feet behind her in closing. Even over the roaring Articat engines and the whipping winds, Donald could hear her laughter. Let's see Hannah compete with this. Brother Bobby was at least 100 yards back. He just didn't have the aggression of Donald and, apparently, Betty. Betty shouted something. Donald thought it was try and catch me, old man, but he couldn't be sure. Bobby owned this whole area. Some places in the world, 20 acres was considered an estate. Near Gaylord, Michigan, 20 acres was just called some land. Mostly old cornfields, along with tall green pines, skeletal winter oaks, and birch stands. Bobby lived smack in the middle of it all in total isolation. It took two minutes just to reach his house from the road. Betty followed the trail into a left-hand bend that cut around a stand of pine trees. She slowed to start the turn, then gunned the engine, accelerating through the curve. She disappeared from sight for just a few seconds as Donald came around the curve behind her. When he saw her again, he felt his nuts jump into his chest. Up ahead, the trail crossed a snow-covered road, and on that road was a brown and white Winnebago moving along at a good clip. Slow down, girl! Donald hissed to himself. Betty couldn't hear him or read his mind, obviously, because she poured on the speed. Donald tried to catch up and cut her off, but she had her throttle wide open. The Winnebago started honking, but didn't seem to slow. Betty apparently thought it would. Sick in his soul, Donald traced the two vehicles' trajectories. She wouldn't make it across in time. Betty apparently saw the same thing. She locked up the brakes the cat's back-end fishtail to the right, kicking up a wave of powder in front of it. The sled lost most of its speed, but still tipped. Betty hopped off as the sled flopped onto its side and kept moving. She actually landed on her feet and slid for a few yards before she fell hard. The cat skidded along the path for another ten feet, coming to rest right at the edge of the road. The Winnebago roared by, trailing a cloud of powder. The big vehicle slowed down, working towards a full stop on the snowy road. Donald skidded to a halt and hopped off his sled. Betty was already sitting up, sitting up, and laughing. Betty, are you all right? She took off her helmet, black hair spilling out across the shoulders of her white snowsuit. She laughed again, then winced. Ow! She said through a grimacing smile. Oh, Daddy, I think I hurt my bootay. He heard the Winnebago come to a stop, and his brother's sled approaching. Donald didn't care about either. He was too angry. Betty Jane Jewel, what the hell were you doing? Trying to beat you, of course, Betty said. If I could have made it in front of that RV, you would have pulled off and I'd win. You idiot! You could have been killed! Betty waved her hand dismissively. Oh, relax. You taught me how to dump a sled, Dad. I'm fine. You're not going on a snowmobile again, and that's that! Betty's smile faded. Dad, seriously, I'm fine. I think you're getting a little fired up here. He was losing his temper again, the same temper that had fucked up his entire life. He took a deep breath and started to get a hold of it. 
and he would have succeeded were it not for the driver of the Winnebago. You stupid little brat, the man screamed. What kind of a stupid fucking stunt was that? Donald looked up. The driver, a red-bearded fat man well past middle age, had gotten out of the Winnebago and walked over. He was only 10 feet away. Donald's temper shifted targets in an instant, fueled by the language directed against his daughter. Don't you yell at her, Dale Jr. You're the one tearing up the road. I was going the speed limit, dipshit. Daddy, please, Betty said. Donnie didn't hear. He was already too far gone. Dipshit. I'm a dipshit. You ever hear of a fucking brake pedal? Somewhere in the back of his head, Donald heard his brother's snowmobile slow and stop. The man pointed to the road. You see the snow-covered pavement there, genius? You think you can stop a motorhome and a dime on that? Maybe you should take some driving lessons then, you prick. You could have killed my daughter. I could have killed her. That's what I said, numbnuts. Donnie, Mark, stop it, Bobby yelled, but neither man was paying attention. Well, the man said, if you're her father, maybe running a rover wouldn't be so bad for the gene pool. That tore it. Donald threw down his helmet and stormed forward and found himself looking down the barrel of a gun. Daddy, Betty screamed. Just hold your horses, pal, the bearded man said. I don't really care for a fist fight today. Oh, wow, Bobby said. Uh, Mark, could you put that down? The man looked to his right, but kept the gun leveled at Donald. You know this douchebag, Bobby? Donald didn't move. Uh, yeah, Bobby said. This is my brother, Donnie. Uh, Donnie, this is my neighbor, Mark Jenkins. Pleased to meet you, Donald said. He kept himself very still while he said it. The bearded man looked from Bobby to Donald, then back to Bobby again. Oh, the man said, then lowered the gun. Well, sorry about that then. A huge breath slid out of Donald's lungs. Bobby, sorry about drawing on your brother, but he was coming at me. He clicked the safety on and slid the pistol somewhere in his ample back waistband. They all stood there in silence for a moment. This is just a bit uncomfortable, Betty said. So, Mark... Bobby said. How was your hunting trip? I pulled an offer, Mark said. Got all new rifles and the deer just didn't show up. This might not be a good time for small talk, though, Bobby. How about you and the family come over for dinner next week? Will do, Mark, Bobby said. Be seeing you. Mark nodded, turned, and walked back to his Winnebago. The jewels watched him get in and drive off. That gun legal? Donald asked. Bobby shrugged. Probably. You know as well as I do, you don't ask around here. He moved in last year. as a bit of a thing for Candace. No shit? No shit, Bobby said. He's fairly open about it. Normally, that'd chat my ass, but he can look all he wants. I don't really make a big deal of it, for reasons I'm sure you can now appreciate. Yeah, Donald said. I think I see where you're coming from. God, Daddy, Betty said. You can be such an asshole. Can you please pick up my sled so I can go back to Uncle Bobby's house and die of embarrassment? Donald did just that. She hopped on, then raced off down the trail. The Jewel brothers watched her go. She can really drive that thing, Bobby said. Donald nodded. Donnie, 
I'm going to throw it a wild guess here. You haven't been taking your meds, right? Donald shook his head. I figured as much, Bobby said. What I love about you is your consistency. You never learn. Come on. Candace is working on a big lunch. My daughter, the blonde tornado, wants to watch the Pistons with her unky Donnie. Think you can manage that without trying to beat someone up? I can give it the old college try. They got on the sleds and headed back down the trail. Donald felt like a complete idiot, losing his temper like that in front of his daughter. What if the guy hadn't been Bobby's neighbor? What if he'd just been some jackass with a gun? Then Donald and his daughter could have been in real danger. Maybe he'd start taking those meds as soon as he got back to the house. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Motel Room Coffee. Dew sat in his motel room, sipping a cup of motel room coffee. He remembered when it was all fancy to have one of those little single cup coffee machines in your room. Now they were everywhere, and they all skimped on the vitals. Who the hell made coffee with only one creamer and one sugar? Shitty as the coffee was, he needed that caffeine kick for this conversation. He held the coffee in one hand his old brick-like, secure satellite phone in the other. It was a bloodbath, Murray, Dew said. You screwed the pooch this time, Top, Murray said. Using the shorthand for Top Sergeant, Dew's rank back when they served together. Dew hated that phrase, and Murray knew it. You put me up against it, Murray said. The new chief of staff is going to have my balls on a platter for this. I told them Dossie was under control. Yeah, well, that was a pretty stupid thing to do, LT. Murray's old wartime shorthand for lieutenant annoyed him just as much as Top annoyed Dew. It's not all bad. At least Margaret has the test for the house. That's a big step. True. That'll help some, Murray said. I don't know if it'll be enough. Vanessa Colburn has it in for me. Something else might help, too, Dew said. After I sent my report, the guys found the daughter, Sarah McMillan, in a shallow grave in the backyard, killed by a hammer blow to the head. So it's not like Dossie was butchering innocence here. Nice, Murray said. How's the baby and the oldest son? Baby's fine. No infection. Oldest son, Tad, he's physically okay. Psychologically... Well, turns out that the father made Tad dig the grave for the sister. You're shitting me. I shit you not, Dew said. That's what the boy told us. And he's probably telling the truth, because his hands are all blistered. It's pretty hard to dig through frozen ground. Hence, the shallow part of the shallow grave. Jesus. Well, I, I guess I can say Dossie actually saved Tad while I'm at it. Less psycho, more brave hero. Murray, listen. 
I'm thinking maybe it's time we put Darcy away. A pause. Define put him away. Not that kind, Dew said. Sanitarium or something. Supermax. Whatever. Come on, Dew, Murray said. You know we can't do that. He attacked two agents. Baumgartner has a broken nose and Milner has a black eye for fuck's sake, Murray said. They probably got worse in a pickup basketball game. That doesn't matter. Salting an agent is a federal offense. Oh, are you going to start obeying the letter of the law all of a sudden? Let's make that happen, Top. Maybe you and I can share a cell and have some quality time together before they give us the chair. Dew said nothing. That's what I thought, Murray said. You know what? The kid's no different from us. He just doesn't have a badge. That one hit home. Was Dew actually like Perry? Willing to do whatever it took to get the job done? No, they weren't alike for one key reason Dew didn't want to admit. He'd killed a lot more people than Dossie had. He wrecked that car, Dew said. He wants another one. So get him another one. It's only taxpayer money. Enough bitching about this kid already, Do We need a live host. Why the fuck do you think I'm bitching about him? How am I supposed to get a live host when Dossie is running around killing him like a fucking wild animal? Murray was silent for a second. Do what the hell happened to you? Oh, Christ, Do said. Are you firing up a rah-rah speech? Just shut the fuck up and listen, Murray said. And that's an order. Your job used to be getting men to follow you, because if they didn't, they'd wind up dead, and you probably along with them. This isn't any different. Find a way to get the job done. Do it, and the parameters set before you. I don't want to hear about your obstacles or any kind of pressure that you're under. How about you see this shit firsthand, and then you talk to me about pressure, Dew said. I'll switch places with you in a heartbeat. Vanessa Colburn would eat you alive, Murray said. You wouldn't last five minutes here, just like I wouldn't last five minutes there. What the fuck is wrong with you? You get your partner killed, and you think you're excused from finding a way to get the job done? Dew took a slow breath. You'd best be real careful how you choose your words from here on out, LT. Oh, can the tough guy drama, Murray said. Malcolm is dead, Do Deal with it. You want payback, right? You're goddamn right I do. That was exactly what he wanted. More than anything else, save for a magic potion that would bring Malcolm back from the dead. Well, you're the one that can make it happen, Murray said. You sure as hell aren't on this job because of your good looks or your physical prowess. You're old. You've got a gut. And you have a bad hip. You have only two things that make you worth a squirt of piss. You shoot when you're told to shoot, and you figure things out. Get Dossie to play ball, and get me a live host. Murray broke the connection. Maybe he was an asshole, but that didn't shake a nagging feeling that he was right. That's why they give you the tough jobs, old boy, Deuce said to the empty room because you can figure things out. So how the hell was he going to get through to Scary Perry Dossie? The most important meal of the day. 
Sometimes having a black budget was fun. Bob's Breakfast Shack wasn't a shack at all. It was actually part of the motel. A nice little greasy spoon with 20 tables, four of which were kind of off in their own room. For the small price of five Ben Franklin portraits, Dew's people had the room to themselves. Fuck it. It was only taxpayer money. You could spend just so much time in the Margot Mobile's computer area. Buying out the diner's back room let them talk openly. Dew sat at a table with Clarence Otto, Amos Braun, and Margaret Montoya. Gitch, Marcus, the black-eyed Milner, and the nose-braced Baumgartner sat at another. Marcus was quietly whistling the melody from the animal's House of the Rising Sun. Dew had sent the other men home last night after they secured the scene. They were local talent, which he used for muscle when he needed it. The tactic gave him just-in-case firepower, yet cut down on people who knew the whole story. Amos had the menu open in front of him. He could barely see over the top. Dew considered making a crack about a child seat, but he assumed Amos had heard that one a million times. They didn't get to do this often, maybe two or three days a week. Dew not only looked forward to it, he found time to make it happen. The whole situation had grown so dark, so desperate, that they needed a release. Breakfast meetings provided a rare chance to do something normal, to laugh and joke, even if it was gallows humor most of the time. Okay, Margaret, Dew said. Give me the rundown on last night's autopsies. She looked up from her menu. What, here? Yep, right here, Dew said. I'm pretty sure the Ruskies haven't bugged Bob's breakfast shack. Ruskies, Otto said. Doesn't that phrase show your age? Actually, my uneducated friend, Amos said. Ruskies is accurate since we now have a country called Russia. Commies would be inaccurate since it's the USSR that's no longer around. Otto frowned, then smiled. Say, little white man, don't you owe me 20 bucks? Ah, crap, Amos said. That's right. He fished out his wallet and handed over a well-folded 20. What's that for? Margaret asked. Otto pocketed the 20. He bet that Dossie would kill me last night. Margaret took in a gasp of astonishment. Amos, you didn't. I paid him, didn't I? She shook her head and scowled at both men. Seriously, that's not something to joke about. If I don't laugh, I'll cry, Otto said. Or something like that. I won 20 bucks. What else matters? The waitress came to take their orders. They sat in silence until she'd worked the room and left. Okay, Dew said. Let's get back on task here. First of all, Margot, congrats on developing that triangle test. Otto and Amos both applauded lightly. Margaret blushed. Oh, it's a team effort. Amos laughed. Give it a rest, Miss Modesty. Was all your idea and it works. What else did you find from the corpses? Dew asked. Nothing completely new, Margaret said. Although we refined a lot of our knowledge, Amos and I got great pictures of the parasite's nerve interface, the best yet. The same thing for the circulatory tap. I think we've pretty much documented how the thing interacts with those systems, although the disturbing part is still the brain interaction. These parasites clearly know more about the inner workings of our brain than we do. What about the vector? Dew said. She shook her head. Still nothing. So much of that comes from interviewing disease victims, finding out what they ate, drank, where they went, who they touched, things like that. The only person who can talk about it won't talk about it. 
goddamn Dossie, Dew said. What about the number of hosts this time? There were three of them, and we had those three old ladies that Perry torched. Any significance to that number? Probably not, Amos said. There have been cases with just one host, like Perrier, with two and even three. What's more significant here is that this was one family living under one roof, so they probably ate the same food, traveled in the same patterns. The three old ladies all lived at the same retirement home. They took walks together every day. That shows whatever the vector is, it can hit some or all of the people in a specific area. Could they have given it to each other? Dew asked. One gets infected, gives it to the rest. Margaret shook her head. All the Macmillan's triangles were at the same stage of development, which indicates they all contracted the disease at the same time. Add to that three people under the same roof who did not have triangles. As far as we can tell, it's not contagious. Which brings up an interesting point, Amos said. The gate was finished, right? Built by hatchlings that had already hatched. So if all the Macmillans were at the same stage of development, they must have caught it after the other hosts. Why were they behind the times, so to speak? They were obviously infected later, Margaret said. Whatever it is, something they touched, something they ate, the infected members of the family were exposed at the same time. That still doesn't give us clues towards the vector. Amos, did Tad say anything? Amos shook his head. Turns out he's been grounded for a while. The parents left him alone at the house a few times. They could have picked it up shopping, running errands. The follow-up FBI team will interview him, Dew said. Maybe they can get something when they run the background checks on the McMillans. Margaret reached across the table and grabbed Dew's hand. Dew, that's all well and good. We already have someone who is infected. If Perry would open up, provide us an overview of his behavior in the days leading up to the infection, that would give us something to work with. Can you talk to him again? Dew rolled his eyes. What the fuck is this? International pile on Phillips Day? I just had this conversation with Murray, thank you very much. Right, Margaret said. And what did Fearless Leader say? He said I have to find a way to reach Dossie. Sound familiar? Margaret leaned forward, both elbows on the table. She pointed her fork at Dew. You threatened Perry, and it hasn't worked. You've tried tricking him following him so you can knock him out before he killed the host, and that hasn't worked. Have you tried just being nice to him? Be nice to him, Dew said, his voice rising. He pointed at Milner and Baumgartner. Look at their faces, Margo, and tell me we should be nice to Dossie. Margaret tilted her head to the right. And what were those men going to do when they caught up with Perry? Dew didn't say anything. Well, come on out with it. Dew ground his teeth. They had orders to taser him. Then what? Dew looked away. Then put him in handcuffs and inject him with a knockout drug. Margaret just nodded and smiled. This woman was too smart for her own good. You've been nice to him, Dew said, surprising himself by how petulant he sounded. Look how far that's gotten us. Dew, I'm female. Maybe this is a newsflash to you, but Perry's opinion of women in general isn't all that high. I spent a lot of time with him when he was recovering. I could be nice all day, and he'll be nice back, but he doesn't listen to me. That's sexist, Dew said. I'm rather appalled. Margaret nodded. And we don't have several months of sensitivity training to get through to him. If we're going to reach him now, a man needs to connect with him. 
So what the fuck do you want from me, Montoya? Do said. You want me to whip up a game of poker? You want me to take a warm shower with him and hold his hand until the wee hours of the morning? No, she said. And stop quoting Clint Eastwood movies. How about you start simple? Did you ask him to join us for breakfast? Do just blinked. It hadn't even crossed his mind. Huh, Otto said. I never thought of that. I'd rather you didn't, Amos said. I'm not sitting at a table with that guy. He might mistake me for a breakfast burrito. Maybe a half stack of mini pancakes, you mean, Otto said. I want my menu back, Amos said. Maybe I'll order some black forest ham and flush it down the crapper. Oh, Amos, Otto said, smiling as if he'd just had the most helpful idea in the history of man. Are you upset because you can't see over the table? Should I ask the waitress for a child seat? Like I haven't heard that one a million times. Dew reached out and squeezed Margaret's elbow, then stood. Where are you going? Amos asked. See if Perry wants to join us for breakfast, Dew said. Margaret's got to be wrong about something sooner or later, so let's find out. He won't come, Amos said. I bet he will, Otto said. Dew here can be very persuasive. Twenty bucks says Dossie doesn't even leave the room, Amos said. You're on, Otto said. Margaret shook her head. Is there anything you two won't bet on? I'm sure there's something, Otto said. Twenty bucks says there isn't, Amos said. Margaret shook her head some more. Otto smiled at Dew. Well, go on and bring him here so I can win another 20. Dew turned and walked out of the restaurant. Wakey, wakey, hands off, snakey. Bang, bang, bang. A pounding at the door. Each bang matching the pounding in his head. Perry's eyes fluttered open. Could it hurt to blink? Yes, it could. Bang, bang, bang. Go away, Perry said. Whispered was more like it. Bang, bang, bang. Go away, Perry screamed, and instantly regretted it. His hand shot to his head, palms covering his eyes. Why was his face all sticky? The bed reeked of stale beer. Get up, Dossie! Time for breakfast! Do motherfucking Phillips. At his door at the crack of dawn, Perry sat up and looked at the glowing red clock in the nightstand. 8.45 a.m. Okay, so it wasn't the crack of dawn. It was still too damn early to be out of bed. Rise and shine, big boy! Dew yelled. Let's go. Everyone is waiting for you, and my food's getting cold. God damn, did his head hurt. Dew, go away, Perry said. I'm not kidding. Dew wanted to parade him around at breakfast so they could all have a good laugh at the freak's expense? No way. Perry didn't know what their game was, but he wasn't playing. Come on, kid. I can smell the beer all the way out here. You bathing the stuff? Perry stood and walked to the bathroom. He put the plastic ice bucket in the sink, then turned on the cold water. Hold on, Perry said. Let me get dressed. That's the spirit, Dew said. And if you smell like the rest of your room, you might want to take a shower. A quick one, though. I don't have all day. 
Perry turned on the shower's hot water and let it run. He grabbed the now-full ice bucket out of the sink and walked to the front door. Hey, do. Yeah? Hey, is it cold outside? It's the dead of winter in northern Wisconsin, Dew said. It's friggin' freezing. In one smooth motion, Perry opened the door and sloshed the ice bucket water into Dew's chest. He had a brief glimpse of Dew flinching before the water soaked him, then the man's eyes going wide with cold and surprise. Perry shut the door and locked it. I'll pass on breakfast, Perry said. Rain check? Bang, bang, bang. Open this fucking door, you fuck! Perry started to lie down again, then remembered that his bed was soaked with beer. He pulled the blankets off and tossed them on the floor. You better go change, Perry said. Like you said, it's friggin' freezing. Bang, bang, bang. Kid, I'm gonna beat your ass! Perry laughed, but that hurt even more than talking. He pulled off the sheets and tossed them on top of the blankets leaving a naked mattress. It had a few beer-wet spots, but it would do. He had passed out in his clothes. They were beer-soaked as well, so he took them off and lay down. The running shower helped drown out Dew's shouts a little. Perry just closed his eyes and waited. If Dew didn't go away soon, his clothes would freeze on him, and he'd catch pneumonia and die. Either way, Perry won. A wave of nausea hit him. He slid his head over the side of the bed and threw up on the floor. As if his head didn't hurt enough already. Was a hangover vomit not one of the worst pains in the world? And Perry Dossie knew pain. He dragged his face back, using the corner of the mattress to wipe the puke away from his mouth. The banging stopped, and he quickly fell asleep. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.